0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. When young adults were asked in a survey about their priorities, researchers expected a different answer than the one they got. Students named happiness as their main priority. There's been a lot of research on the subject of happiness in young adults, much of it aggregated by and conducted by our guest. Dr. Tim Bono is an expert on psychological health and happiness. He teaches a popular course at Washington University titled The Psychology of Young Adulthood. And he's written a book titled When Likes Are Not Enough, a crash course in the science of happiness. Tim, nice to have you back with us. It's great to be back. Thank you, Don. The science of happiness? Didn't yes. know there was such a thing.
1: Yes, well, it's relatively new. Historically, the field of psychology focused a lot of attention on understanding Um, Different forms of psychopathology like depression or schizophrenia or anxiety. But more recently, there has been a shift toward applying the scientific method to understanding something that I think we all are interested in, which is happiness and how to achieve um, the good life based on the behaviors that can bring us there.
0: What is the scientific method?
1: Well, the scientific method is interested in testing hypotheses by collecting data on large groups of people and running them through different experiments to identify which kinds of behaviors um, in the long run have the biggest implications for that sense of happiness. Um, so you can bring people into a lab setting and um, give them different tasks or different thought experiments and then follow up with them and see which of those behaviors truly are um, Providing those those gains in their overall happiness and well being.
0: And your book is full of that research. There's an awful lot of studies been done on this subject.
1: Yeah. So the book has over a hundred studies that have been conducted no. on college students and other adults all throughout the country and around the world, in fact. And so it's essentially providing a narrative based on how my own students over the years have taken that research and incorporated that research into their own personal lives. How do you define happiness? Well, I would say that there are as many ways to define it as there are people who want to yeah. offer a way of defining it, which is why for scientific purposes, it's actually more common for us not to use the word happiness, but instead to use the phrase subjective well-being with an important emphasis on that word subjective. That in order to know how happy somebody is, it turns out that you don't get a very good sense of how happy they are by looking at how much money they have in the bank or the size of their house or other external characteristics of their lives. A much stronger predictor of happiness is their own appraisal of the circumstances, the extent to which they express gratitude for what they have, the extent to which they're incorporating exercise or meditation or gratitude into their daily habits, um, that that ultimately will take whatever characteristics they have and highlight them in a way that they do have that inner sense of happiness and well-being.
0: What, what did you expect to find when you're doing this research, you and others who have done the research?
1: Well, um, I, I'd say that that there were a lot of unknowns because it's a relatively young field. So I started conducting this research when I was a Ph.D. student um, in 2006. And so certainly there had been a number of researchers who had studied positive emotion for a long time. But my true motivation for pursuing this line of work was that I – As part of my graduate training, I had a fellowship in the Office of Residential Life where I was interacting with a lot of first year students. And I just noticed that there was a lot of variability in terms of how they were doing. Some students were coming into college and they were very successful and they were happy and they seemed to have a lot of friends. They were doing well by most measures. And others were really struggling. And the traditional predictors, SAT scores, high school GPA, didn't seem to do a very good job of predicting their happiness. And so my initial research was essentially exploratory. I just wanted to collect data on these students to find out what is, what is it that differentiates these students in terms of their overall well-being. So I went in with a, a series of hypotheses that had been rooted in, in other research, but um, a lot of the big ones have to do with um, perhaps most important of all is the strength of their social connections. Do they have other friends, other people who they can turn to. That when things are going well, they can share that that positivity to sort of savor it and extend the goodness that comes from it. And when things don't go well, that they bring a realistic expectation to that. That life is full of hardship. Life has adversity, and so they have other people who they can turn to to help them um, take a more uh, a perspective on that. That can help them recover from it a bit more quickly and get back to their baseline. Um, and sort of on with their lives.
0: By and large, is it a fairly unhappy group, this young adult group?
1: Well, um, if you look at the at the data, it is a group that that is unhappy relative to previous cohorts of young adults. In fact, if you look at the data from the Pew Research Group, um, and they've been tracking happiness and other forms of well-being for a long time, um, it, if you start looking at it around the 90s, what you find is that happiness among young adults was increasing pretty steadily, Um, through the 90s, through the early 2000s, and then 2010 happened, and every chart sees this dramatic precipitous drop in happiness. And you you find the same pattern with life satisfaction. It was going up, we reached 2010, and then there's a sharp drop. You look at depression, anxiety, loneliness, that was kind of steady, and then suddenly started to shoot up at 2010. And everybody started to scratch their heads and say, well, what's going on here? Well, there was something else that was going on in 2010. And that is that um, that was the year when smartphones became almost ubiquitous among young adults. In fact, there was a report from Penn State that was released recently. And it seems that that young adults who were in college between 2010 and 2015, that group in particular seems to have been hit especially hard by this because when you look at the proportion of students who are in need of mental health counseling services, that that shot up like 30% just in those five years, which is more than six times the increase in the um, – or I should say it's, it's six times um, the rate – Um, beyond just those increases in in enrollment. And college campuses are scrambling. Nobody really knows exactly how to address this. They're hiring more mental health counselors to respond to this. But when you look at the data, it really seems that what is driving this is that in 2010, with the advent of of social media really taking over um, that we need preventative measures beyond just responding to the distress. It becomes important for us to understand how do we actually address this addiction that so many young adults have to social media and to their phones um, because it's, um, it's underestimated, I think, just how profound it is in the overall well-being and the hits it's taking to their mental health.
0: But if social interaction is a component of happiness, it would seem to me that uh, the, the phone is, is an avenue to social interaction.
1: Well, there are <laughs> different forms of social interaction. Social interaction. So um, it is true that that the single strongest predictor of happiness is the strength of our social connections. But in that case, we're talking about social connections with the three-dimensional people, spending time with real people. Um, the biggest, one of the biggest barriers to a sense of happiness is social comparison. And unfortunately, when you log on to Facebook or you're using technology as your primary means of communicating, so much of what happens when we are communicating with people in person is completely lost because there's not the momentum that can be built when you're having an actual conversation with another person. So much of our ability to communicate effectively with another person is in nonverbal communication, beyond just a picture that we post or words that we say. It has to do with the timing and the pace of of the communication, the sense of energy, the the spirit that might exist between two people when they're actually occupying the the same space. And so um, I would say that it's not appropriate to equate Social connection when you're actually physically with another person to the um, interactions, uh, for lack of a better word, that are taking place when you're on Facebook or Instagram. Those are really not the same thing. And in fact, I would say that those are diametrically opposed because um, when you're using social media, that ultimately is a form of of social comparison that it 's just allowing you to go on to see how other people are doing the cool trips that they 're taking who they 're spending their time with the accomplishments that they have, and that form of social comparison psychologists have known for a long time uh, makes it really difficult to be happy if you constantly have your head over your shoulder wondering how do you measure up to others you 're putting your happiness into a variable that is completely beyond your control and that is again, what's driving down this happiness. So social media is not only unproductive, it's actually counterproductive for our happiness.
0: Hence the title of your book, When Likes Are Not Enough Likes, as in Facebook and and some of the others.
1: That's exactly right. It's, It's remarkable when I talk to my own students about the algorithms that they have, about they derive a sense of worth based on the number of likes, the amount of external validation that they're getting from other people after they post something to Instagram. I have some students who have told me that if their picture doesn't get a hundred likes within 24 hours. They have to take it down because it's no longer event worthy. It's, it's no longer something that means something special to them. And again, that, that form of social comparison and the ease with which we're able to engage in it is providing no good recipe for our overall happiness. You know, I'm just looking at my note
0: here as uh, taken from your book. You say that unhappy people feel good only when they are relatively better off than those around them. That is with regard to pay or jobs or anything you you want to compare.
1: Yes, and it goes back to that idea of social comparison. Um, there was a great study a couple of years ago that showed that when young adults came into a lab to complete word puzzles, the happiest people felt good about their performance regardless of how anybody else was doing. The unhappy people felt good about their performance only if they outperformed the person who was sitting next to them. And they felt bad um, if the person next to them was doing well. They felt good even if they were doing poorly, as long as they were doing better than the person next to them, mm-hmm. then they felt good. And again, you're putting your happiness into somebody else's hands, um, it's much better to derive a sense of well-being from your own internal standards and opportunities to build on those.
0: You also draw some interesting uh, conclusions from what we have come to call helicopter parents and the influence they have on kids, which is more negative than many people might have thought.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, parents often have the best of intentions for their kids. But um, one of the things that we know is very important... In developing a sense of well-being is having a spirit of resilience and the ability to, to identify when things are not going well and then to be able to pick yourself back up, reflect on it, develop a sense of mastery, learn something from it, and then move on with your life. And that resilience is an important life skill. But nowadays, we know that we have parents who, in many cases, are more involved than ever with their kids. And so as soon as Johnny has a problem at school, the parent swoops in to try to clear every pebble and make it as easy as possible so that Johnny doesn't have to suffer. And the and the idea behind this is that we want kids – or we don't want kids to know what it's like to have to work hard at something and not have it go their way. But ask any adult, ask anybody who's ever achieved success at anything, and they will tell you that that in order to achieve that success – they had to fail, they had to learn certain lessons, they had to acquire certain experiences. And sometimes the only way, and sometimes really the best way to do that is through failure, through trying things one way, seeing what doesn't work, and then making the appropriate modifications. There's so much you learn from that ability, but these helicopter parents are preventing the child from from getting those learning experiences because the parents are swooping in and then the kid never learns how to do it on their own.
0: Kids have to be prepared for adversity, as you say in your book. Don't give a trophy to every kid whether he wins the game or loses the game.
1: That's right. I'm I'm a child of the 80s, so I have a whole shoebox full of ribbons and mm-hmm. trophies that I certainly did not earn, but that nonetheless we didn't want a kid to know what it was like to show up, to work hard at something and have it not go their way. And that is now having an effect on the sense of entitlement that many young adults are having as they make their way into the into the workforce or other opportunities that everything is just always going to work out because they wanted it to or because they're working hard. Um or it, it, but in fact, um a part of psychological health is knowing how to deal with disappointment and adversity and how to pick yourself back up from that and keep going.
0: Well, you have a box full of ribbons, but you also have a PhD, so you, over, you overcame it. <laughs> I, I did, yes.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate that, that my parents were, were ones who, um, you know, of course, one of the best. I'm one of five kids, which means that we often had to fend for ourselves mm-hmm. and figure things out. We had a lot of support from them, certainly. But yeah, when, when you're in a family of seven, you also have to learn some things on your own, too.
0: Our producers want to know, do you do Instagram or Facebook or Uh, Twitter?
1: (laughs) So I do not have Instagram. I still don't understand what it is. I do have Facebook because it started when I was a senior in college. But at the time, like that was before we even had Wi-Fi on campus. That was before we had smartphones. And so I hardly ever post. So I posted the link to this interview, actually. And it was maybe like the second post I put in like three years or something. Um, I have Twitter only because my book publisher said that I had to. (laughs) um, But I still don't really understand what the purpose of that is like, if you want to know what I'm doing, please give me a call and I'll be happy to have a conversation. But I don't. Yeah, I, I, I am not a heavy social media user at all.
0: Uh, well, I hope you have a lot of friends on Facebook and that they're all listening to you right now.
1: Yeah, I hope well, it did. I did check. <laughs> it did get a number of likes. So I'm hopeful that, that at least some of them are listening in.
0: That should make you happy.
1: <laughs> It'll make me happier if they actually call me and we can have a conversation about it afterwards.
0: Our guest is Tim Bono. He's from Washington University. He's the author of the book, When Likes Are Not Enough. We'll come back and continue this conversation in just a moment. We'd like you to be a part of it. We've got a little time. Give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org. Or if you prefer to send us a tweet, do so at STL on air. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think about this happiness thing that we're talking about, and particularly happiness? or lack of it in young adults. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to our conversation on happiness with Professor Tim Bono of Washington University. Tim, you had mentioned uh, alluded uh, earlier to the, the uh, incidence of mental illness among young people, yes. and uh, you really do connect a lot of dots, associating the unhappiness factor with that.
1: Yes, and and that's something that w- again, when you look at the pattern of data, um, it's it the the. the Increases in mental illness seem to be corresponding almost precisely to the increase in the prevalence of social media and how many young adults are on it and also how much time they're spending on it. Mm -hmm. And now we have experimental evidence. So, psychologists have been designing studies where they manipulate the amount of time people spend on social media. And now we have causal evidence to suggest that when people spend more time, um, especially among the heaviest users of social media, it is. It does tend to be associated with a decrease in their well-being.
0: Have you come up with any remedies for this yet? You said that over at Washington, U, Washington University, they're concerned about it and they're looking at it. But is any remedy in
1: sight? Um, well, I would say that that given that, that the culprit seems – or there are probably many different um, – factors that are contributing to this. But given that social media is is, is key among them, I think that that is a good place to start. And so now we have apps that are coming on that allow people to Mm -hmm. actually have to be held accountable for how much time they're spending on social media. So it, it'll actually count the number of times that you check your phone. It'll tell you at the end of the day how much time you're spending on it. And that can be an effective way to change a behavior. Um, if you're trying to break any bad habits, simply paying attention to how frequently you are engaging the behavior and having to face the reality that you're spending more time on it than you realize is a very good place to start to reduce how frequently um, you're engaging in that behavior.
0: C- calls are coming in. I want to take them. One other thing, and- injunction with what you just said. You had a fascinating study, you do a fascinating study in your own classroom with regard to the six-minute assignment. Just explain what that is and how it worked.
1: Sure. So each <clears throat> spring, in fact, I just did this um, last week with my students, I ask the students to sit in silence for six minutes, and they have to put away their phone, they can't go on to TV or use any media, and just entertain themselves only with their thoughts. So this has to be the easiest assignment that a Washington University student will get in their four years, and yet the response rate, or I should say the completion rate, is among the lowest of any assignment that I have ever given. Because many students say, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't sit a whole six minutes without actually trying this out or without actually going on and seeing if I had a new Instagram post like or if there were any updates on Facebook. Um, And it speaks to our inability to maintain control of our attention. So the reason why I have the students do it is to say, if it's that difficult to sit in silence for six minutes without distracting thoughts, luring you away, over the course of twenty-four hours, think about how much your attention is being derailed when you sit down to write a paper or have a conversation with your friend. Um, and so, I use that as a segue to to talk about the importance of of meditation. is ultimately a means of training our attention and overriding the impulse from a distracting thought to maintain attention on a task at, at hand.
0: And some of the students said it was the most difficult assignment they'd ever had.
1: There are some students who say that, it is, that it's almost impossible. And I think these are the same students in organic chemistry who are gonna be physicians one day and yet they can't sit in silence for six minutes. But hopefully by the end of that lecture series, when we get to the, the meditation stuff, hopefully they are able to do it with ease.
0: Let's go to the phones and bring in Jan calling from Manchester. Jan, thanks for being patient, you're on the air.
2: Good afternoon. Um, I teach a class at Phan Phan University, and I have wonderful students. And one of my very first uh, directives is that they must put their phones away, that they cannot have them on the desk the entire 75 minutes together. And the very first thing they do uh, when the class is over is they grab for their phones. And I had read about something called FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. Yes. And uh, they're very nervous when they can't access their phones. And another piece I wanted to tell you was, uh, speaking to your whole um, idea of grit and resiliences. I'm a big uh, proponent of the Carol Dweck Mindset School of Thought, and I love her work. And um, I speak with the students often about the power of struggle. And I use the example of the butterfly and the little girl who helped the butterfly come out of the cocoon. And then the butterfly couldn't fly because it hadn't gone through the whole process of developing and i use that with students and with parents when i do workshops and i also know the, the carol dweck um, philosophy of the power of yet um i don't know that yet or i haven't learned that yet but that keeps the door open and lets students have some additional time to pursue something or stick with it like you said the persistence And um, uh, I just think those are all very important things for parents to be aware of.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I appreciate those comments, Jan, because you're exactly right that um, that the the importance of, of yet that Carol Dweck is getting at there is to help people understand that it's, it's tempting to look at a successful person. It's, it's, when, you, when you come to college, it's tempting, it's tempting to look at people who seem as though they've been successful in everything that they've attempted without understanding that often the people who have succeeded the most are often the people who have failed the most. But when they faced that adversity, they understood, okay, maybe I don't have the skills for this yet but instead of wallowing in my despair i 'm going to reflect on it and think well well what are the skills I can be developing so that when yet gets here when when another opportunity presents itself I will have um, the skills that I need that time around to do that so yeah I think that those are, are some great philosophies that you 're sharing um, in your class and yeah I see the same thing with students if you tell them that they can 't be on their phone the first thing as soon as they 're able to is check it and it speaks to the addiction and how powerful that is fomo is a real thing and it is something for sure that that psychologists are studying. Thanks for the comments.
0: You you uh, do have some p- potential remedies, uh, to use that word again, when you talk about some of the things that uh, kids can do that will help out. M- meditation, which you mentioned a few moments ago, is one of them. How so?
1: Um, well, I think that, that, that meditation in particular is effective because a lot of our distress or anxiety is born from these distracting thoughts that will come into our mind, and they kind of take a life on their own, and they'll turn into these vicious thinking cycles. And so what meditation ultimately is, is about training your mind to, number one, identify when distracting thoughts are coming into your mind, and then number two, having the wherewithal to to let them go, or at least let them be, but then being able to redirect um, the focus of your attention back to the task at hand and so if you can get yourself to focus on your breathing for 15 or 20 minutes a day inevitably your mind will wander one of the biggest misconceptions is that you're supposed to clear your head you're not supposed to have distracting thoughts and that's not true inevitably your mind will start to wander and it is that moment of bringing it back that you are strengthening and it's like any other skill the more that you the, the more that you practice it the stronger that becomes and if as you get better at at identifying and releasing those distracting thoughts during your meditation exercise, that's the same psychological strength that you have when you sit down to write a paper or when you sit down to do something else important, and then suddenly you're tempted to check your phone or log on to Instagram that you identify it as, okay, that's a behavior that's not good for me right now. I identify that that's trying to, to take my attention away, so I'm going to override that temptation and redirect attention back to what I'm supposed to be doing, and then later on I can entertain that if if I still have the the need to do so.
0: But is it realistic to think that you can get a 16 to 25-year-old to to meditate when they can't sit for six minutes and, and not touch their phone?
1: Yeah, so it is is true that these can be difficult interventions to incorporate into your daily life. So if you're not able to do it for six minutes, try it for two minutes. See, even if you can teach them the practices of mindfulness, um, that can be a good place to start. And that's, I think it's important to treat all of these interventions on a continuum. It's not an either or. It's not that, that either you exercise or you don't, and that it only counts if you're exercising by running six miles the loop around Forest Park. See if you can run for 10 minutes. See if you can run for 15 minutes, and then build on those over time.
0: You uh, remind me in some of the things that uh, you're saying of Daniel Pink. We talked off the air mm-hmm. about uh, the book he was on a couple of weeks ago talking about the same sort of thing and he brought up exercise, taking breaks being an important part of kind of getting things back together again.
1: Yes. And <clears throat> exercise, I would say, is, is a particularly important one for our overall well-being. I often say that happiness and well-being is a full-body experience, that when we exercise, that's ultimately releasing the brain's natural feel-good chemical into our bodies, which is very important for a sense of well-being, both for increasing our happiness, but also helping to recover from negative times. Because part of, uh, um, among the neurochemicals that the brain releases when we exercise are those that are inhibitory. So they can essentially put the brakes on anxiety or other negative thinking cycles. So on a biological level, um, the the impact of exercise will play itself out in our psychological health. And the other quick thing I'll say about exercise is that after you have to exercise, you feel a sense of accomplishment that gives you more confidence to then go out and carry out the other items on your to-do list for that day. When you feel accomplished in one aspect of your life, you have more confidence to carry out other tasks that are relevant to, to other um, domains of your life that you, that you need to accomplish.
0: You say, fascinatingly, that sitting is the new smoking.
1: Yes. And there are quite a number of people who have offered that phrase. It's not one that I developed myself. It's probably about five years ago or so that, that physicians started to use that phrase, that they were collecting lots and lots of data and finding that there were all these health risks associated with people who had a sedentary lifestyle, who, were, who had a desk job where right, from nine to five every day. All they were doing was sitting. And now we're finding that that's playing itself out in mental health as well, that people who just take a quick 10 minute break um, uh, periodically throughout the day and just go get some exercise. And especially if if the sun is shining, you spend some time outside, that can provide a boost to your motivation and to your overall sense of of happiness. Um, Yeah, so taking those breaks, making sure that you're not sitting still for too long um, is important for both physical health and mental health.
0: Dan Pink in his book, When, says the same thing, also is a proponent of naps, which you are as well.
1: Yes, yes, for sure. Um, You know, another key behavior that's important for our well-being is a good night's sleep on a regular basis. And if you're not able to get a good night's sleep, um, there is such a thing as a power nap, but it has to be timed carefully because we've all had those naps where we wake up and we feel even worse than when we sat down to take the nap, so a good power nap is it is twenty minutes or ninety minutes. One of the worst things you can do is a forty five or sixty minute nap it 's all about the brain waves that are cycling down to slow waves at about the one hour mark within twenty minutes you 've got fast wave sleep by ninety minutes it 's back at fast wave sleep, and you feel good with a twenty minute nap or a ninety minute nap because um, you'll feel refreshed because you're waking up during fast wave sleep sixty minutes you're waking up during slow wave sleep, and that's where you feel like you've been hit by a ton of bricks as soon as you you wake up.
0: I want to take a call from leo in burns mill and uh, we'll uh, we'll do that now Leo thanks for winning. you're on the air
2: oh my gosh oh, can you hear me okay yeah go ahead oh uh,
0: awesome hey so i it was funny. I actually just tuned in um in the last couple of months I've had this uh you know development of like self awareness and because I constantly think about when you
2: said you realize all those bad habits that you have and you see how much they affect your lifestyle. And my
0: biggest bad habit is getting up in the morning. Because the first thing that I want to do is check my phone and, you know, check all my social media sites. And I was wondering, um, what would you recommend? And I might have missed it. You might have said something a lot, uh, earlier in the program about it. But what would you recommend being, you know, one of the first things that you do, you know, each morning? Is it just individual and each person or is there a good thing that I can that each person can start off on, um, mm-hmm. and
1: something somewhere more along the lines of that. Yeah, it's a great question, Leo, because we haven't addressed it, but I'm glad you asked it so that we can address it now, that, it, that if you want to change a behavior or a habit, those behaviors and habits generally take place in a context. So you want to pay attention as you are doing. That self-awareness is really important to the to what is preceding the onset of the behavior that you're trying to change. So if you find that the first thing you're doing in the morning is reaching for your phone, an easy thing to do would make it more difficult to do that. So maybe you go to Target and you get a cheap $10 alarm clock if, that's what if your phone is what is waking you up. You use that to wake you up in the morning and you keep your phone somewhere else where you actually have to get up out of bed. You keep it in the kitchen or the bathroom or something which then activates the next step in your morning routine. So that that's what I, I would, would um, encourage anybody who wants to change a behavior, especially as it relates to how much time they're spending on social media, pay attention to, to the circumstances when you use it the most and then put a barrier in there to make it harder to use it. Don't put it in arm's reach. Or if you find that you're going on every time you're bored or lonely, find some other activity. One of my students found that she would go onto Facebook every time she was waiting in a line somewhere, but she hated how much time she, that, that she was spending on Facebook. So she downloaded all these other apps to do crossword puzzles or trivia cracker other other games, and she found that that became her go-to, and then she would just play one round of, of Trivia Crack while she was in line, and then she didn't have the ill effects of of, of Facebook or the social comparison that comes from that. So identify what's preceding the behavior and see if you can replace it with something else or put a barrier in there to make it more difficult to activate the behavior.
0: We only have a little over a minute left. I did want to get to something else in the book, the time paradox, in which if you give people a deadline or time pressure, they perform
1: better. Yes. We know that with, with um, time pressure, that creates a sense of anxiety, and some anxiety is good. Excessive amounts are bad, but a little bit of anxiety can be very effective in helping us understand that our time is limited. Limited, and when we understand that our time is limited, we use it much more effectively. So giving yourself a deadline in which you want to carry out um, a particular goal can be very effective in lighting that fire under your feet to carry it out um, effectively.
0: And in 15 to 20 seconds, willpower?
1: Yeah, so that's another um, characteristic that can be strengthened with time. If you can find small everyday opportunities to forego the candy bar at the grocery store or to get yourself up to go to the gym, that willpower muscle becomes stronger. And then you have more willpower for the other things like completing your work effectively um, uh, in, 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 at the office or otherwise um, to regulate your emotions. If you can have strong willpower in one aspect of your life, it'll carry over to other aspects too.
0: And many of the things you've said apply to adults over the age of 25. Yes,
1: absolutely. We, it's things that I think about myself and people across a lifespan can benefit from too.
0: We've got to end it there. Tim Bono, he'll be signing this book by the way when likes are not enough next uh, Tuesday, I guess Tuesday. it is. Mm-hmm. The 13th at Left Bank Books. Thank you so much. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Don. Enjoyed talking to you once again. Professor Tim Bono, author of When Likes Are Not Enough. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.